Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Exodus 13, verses 3 through 10. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Listen again to God's word for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Jesus said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee and Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. 
This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall swiftly be forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As many of you all know, it is World Communion Sunday today, which is celebrated on the first Sunday in October each year. World Communion Sunday began in 1933 in Pittsburgh. It was the idea of a Presbyterian pastor, Reverend Dr. Hugh Thompson Kerr, who is seeking a way to bring churches together in a spirit of Christian unity, a spirit of oneness in Christ, despite geographic distances and denominational differences. Kerr's son later noted that the idea did not really spread much until World War II. He commented in an interview, quote, it was during the Second World War that the spirit caught hold because we were trying to hold the world together. Worldwide communion symbolized the effort to hold things together. In a spiritual sense, it emphasized that we are one in the spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. End quote. One of the primary emphases of World Communion Sunday is, of course, sharing in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is arguably a little ironic uh, for we Christians to focus on as a unifying force, considering that this sacrament has historically been one of the most divisive and disagreed upon aspects of following Christ. For starters, what is this sacrament even called? Is it the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Communion? Does it occur at an altar or a table? What are the bread and the wine in relation to Jesus? And what did Jesus even mean when he said, this is my body and this is my blood? Do we use wine or do we use grape juice? And what happens or is supposed to happen when you eat the bread and drink from the cup? These kinds of questions swirl around this sacrament And the array of scripturally-based answers have repeatedly and historically divided the church, even spurring centuries of religious warfare between Catholics and Protestants. As historian Robert Orsi writes in his book, History and Presence, quote, one of the greatest sources of violence in Western history has been the question of what Jesus meant when he told the apostles to eat his body and drink his blood and to do so in remembrance of him, end quote. And yet, despite that division, or perhaps precisely because it has been so divisive in the past, on World Communion Sunday, we gather around the bread and the fruit of the vine with churches around the world to proclaim our unity in Christ and shared hope in the living God who not only created each one of us in the divine image as part of a good creation, but also came incarnate as Christ to save us from sin and death. 
We join in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to worship the God who unleashed a covenant of grace to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham, through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish Messiah, to bring us all back into right relationship with him and thereby with one another. And despite the many disagreements around this sacrament, I think that the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, Communion, entails three core components around which we can unite and worship God together. And I think those three core components are that this is a sacrament of remembrance, this is a sacrament of transformation, and that this, this is a sacrament of hope. And let's go through each one of those. First, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of remembrance. When we're at this table, we remember the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God with us as one of us to rescue us from the train wreck of our wayward hearts. And that salvation has two main facets, one quite earthly and one quite eternal. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, of course, was Jesus' final meal before he was betrayed and handed over to be falsely accused of crimes that he did not commit. And he was falsely accused all because he was standing up for preaching, teaching, bearing witness to a vision, a movement for a world in which the love of God and neighbor reigns supreme in our hearts. A world in which peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and compassion and justice rule over our relationships with one another. And a world in which faithfulness and love and thanksgiving and obedience rule over our relationship with God. In life and in death, Jesus embodied and shone forth what it looks like to fully embody the love of God and neighbor, even to the point of death on a cross. And yet, on another level, Jesus' life and death constitute far more than just an example or a role model of what righteousness looks like. Because something far deeper and more cosmic occurred in Jesus' life and in Jesus' death, In his life, Jesus walked righteously in full covenant and prayerful relationship with God. Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, and might, and loved his neighbors as, as himself. In life, Jesus resisted temptations to stray from God's life giving ways. And ultimately, Christ was thereby able to take on and bear our sins in a redemptive manner. Riffing on Paul's words to the Corinthians, for our sake, Christ, who knew no sin, took on our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God ourselves. And as the Gospel of Mark similarly attests along these lines, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. And as Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, As recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, the cup that we drink, Jesus said that this cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now there's unquestionably a great degree of mystery to this divine, liberating, healing, covenantal act of God on our behalf. But it is the effective equivalent of something like a judge finding a person guilty, but then coming down from the bench to bear the punishment, the consequence of that guilt, 
so that the guilty person might go free and live a full, redeemed life. Or alternatively, God's saving grace is somewhat akin to a physician coming to care and heal for someone who was deathly ill, and in the process, that physician became deathly ill himself as the patient became healed. Why did God not, or could not God, save us in another manner? I don't know, but God's life, death, and resurrection in Christ Jesus was the path that God took and chose for our salvation from sin and from death. God came personally, incarnationally, to deal with our sin so that we might be free, restored, grown back toward the full and true love of God with all of our heart, soul, and might, grown back into the love of our neighbors as ourselves. Christ's saving life and death, the blood of the covenant poured out for many, are God's way also, clearly, of carrying out the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, the prophecy that declared, Surely the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, a covenant that they broke. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Sisters and brothers, in the Lord's Supper, Christ established a way for us to remember his saving work for us. And I also just want to note, it's interesting that Jesus chose a ritual that entails eating and drinking, uh, because eating itself, if you think about it, eating inherently entails life-giving sacrifice. Although we often might not consider it, given how far we are usually removed from the sources of our food today, when we eat, everything on our plate, whether plant or animal, was once alive but now is dead so that we might live. Eating is a sacrificial activity, and we're dependent on that sacrificial activity for our lives every single day. And in the Lord's Supper... Jesus was giving us a ritual that uses eating and drinking to highlight how we are at an even deeper level dependent on life through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Now, the second core component of the Lord's Supper that is a unifying thing for us across the nominations, across the world, all Christians together, is that the Lord's Supper is a, tr- is a transformative thing, personally and socially. In the Lord's Supper, we are and can be nourished and transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, and honestly, often in ways beyond our comprehension, to become more Christ-like. And in considering that transformative power of the Lord's Supper, it's also interestingly interesting to consider why Christ chose bread and wine as the instruments of this sacrament. Why eating and drinking? I think it's because when we eat things, they shape and form 
and nurture and nourish our bodies. I think Christ instituted a ritual around eating and drinking because food and drink is transformative. It is restorative. It is healing. It is rehabilitative. And if we think again about sin as an illness, it's an illness that the Lord's Supper works to counteract. The early church leader, Ignatius, who uh, was a bishop in second century Antioch, he even fascinatingly wrote about the bread and the sacrament as, quote, medicine of immortality, the antidote to death, the food of eternal life in Jesus Christ. In being saved by Christ, we are healed of the illness of sin and the effects of that healing, while they might be slow and steady progress throughout our lives here on earth as we await the kingdom come, uh, that healing is a process in which we are grown and nourished to become more Christ-like. And on that front, it's perhaps helpful to think about the church even as a space like a physical rehabilitation center, like a sheltering arms that we've got here in Richmond. In and through Christ, the divine image within us that inborn capacity within every one of us to be grown and developed in the twin love of God and neighbor, that, twin lo- uh, that image of God that has been hampered by sin, uh, in Christ uh, and through the sacraments, that image is prayerfully moved, it's exercised, it's strengthened day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And of course, it's strengthened through other practices as well, through prayer and worship, through scriptural study and fellowship, through vocation and through care for one another, through generosity and service to our neighbors near and far, through the pursuit of things like justice and peace on earth. These are all ways in which we're grown and nurtured and loved divine. Uh, But when we are uh, joining together and participating in the Lord's Supper, it is a particularly powerful way in which we are taught and formed and transformed to be more Christ-like. To be, as Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, uh, to be nurtured, to hold fast to what is good, to love one another with mutual affection, to serve the Lord, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in suffering, to persevere in prayer, to contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers, to bless those who persecute us, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to live in harmony with one another, to not repay anyone evil for evil, and so far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with everyone, to not overcome, be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. All of these ways in which the Spirit grows in us, these are things that the Lord's Supper helps transform us uh, to do and to live out. So the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of remembrance. It's a sacrament of transformation. And lastly, the Lord's Supper, this table around which we gather, uh, it's not only about remembrance, it's not only a table of transformation, it's also a table of hope. It's also a table in which we not only look back to Christ's saving life, death, and resurrection, it's not only a table in which we look to the present ways in which we're grown to be more Christ-like, it's also a table of hope in which we look ahead to Christ's return and the full kingdom come. As Professor Ronald Byers writes in, uh, about the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> this is a sacrament in which we, quote, hold up before God in the bread and in the cup a reminder of God's pledge made to humankind in the death and the resurrection of the Lord 
And that pledge is to defeat sin and death and bring into being a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. And I think, again, the fact that the Lord's Supper is a table of hope is another interesting touch point with why Jesus chose food and drink for this particular sacrament. Because fellowship around meals is one of the most profound and powerful testimonies of the goodness of creation that we have. I imagine that everybody in this sanctuary has, sanctuary has had an experience of a joyful feast with friends and family. Whether it was for a special occasion, like a wedding or a birthday, or whether it was just the simple everyday beauty of gathering for dinner at the end of the day. Eating together uh, is also, of course, something that was core to the ministry of Christ. We can see precursors of the Lord's Supper in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. When Jesus took bread, blessed it, gave thanks for it, and then fed and nourished the crowds. We see precursors of the Lord's Supper and the countless feasts, feasts and joy in connection with others that Jesus had around food throughout his earthly ministry. And we can see the goodness of shared meals together uh, in the fact that Jesus echoed in parables that he taught the famous passage from the prophet Isaiah uh, that expresses the goodness of restoration and peace and prosperity in the world to come as a heavenly banquet. In Isaiah 25, the prophet famously proclaims, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace from his people he will take away from all the earth. And I think this reality of the Lord's Supper as a table of hope that looks forward to that heavenly banquet, it's also a place where we have to remember that the taste of the bread and the wine that we have in the sacrament before us It's a symbol, and it's a pointer to that full heavenly banquet, that meal to come in the resurrection. And it's also helpful on that note to remember that in the early church, as comes across clearly in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the Lord's Supper in the early church was a full communal meal. And of course, the Lord's Supper was also something that Jesus instituted as part of the full meal, the Passover Seder, that he shared with his disciples right before his death. A full meal that was commemorating and celebrating God's liberation of the Israelites from slavery, and in which Jesus, at the end, offered the bread and the wine as testaments of the world's coming liberation from sin and death in and through him. So while we celebrate this ritual in Christ, it's important to keep in mind that while we eat and drink or that we, it's important to keep in mind that we eat and drink in hope, and we eat and drink as foretastes of the full meal and feast to come in the kingdom of God, in the resurrection. And along those lines, it's also crucial to remember that in this Lord's Supper, we look ahead to that day when we will be at that table 
as well, not only with Christ, but with all those loved ones that we have lost. We will be again with loved ones to laugh with them, to hug them, to feast and rejoice with them in the resurrection to come. So brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper it is a table of remembrance and it is a table of transformation, but it is also a table of hope. A table of hope that suffering and loss and sin that cut against the goodness of creation are not the last word, but are the very thing that Christ is leading the resurrecting charge against, the very thing against which God is inviting us to join in his life-giving ways, en route to that day when every tear is wiped away. The Lord's Supper is a ritual around which we gather with Christians across the globe and across time to look ahead in hope to the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is a ritual in which we are transformed to be more Christ-like, and it is a ritual in which we remember Christ's saving grace for us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. For all these things, my friends in Christ, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.